Hello! Welcome to the I Am The Code podcast. I'm your host, Marie Jam. Happy Friday. I really hope you're doing very well and you are excited like I am. I am so excited right now. You know what? Because last week we just welcomed our new board of advisors. They are really amazing human beings who have joined us to help us scale our mission. We would like to get 1 million women and girls to learn how to code by the year 2030. So really having them around will help us scale our mission. I want to thank you on behalf of I Am The Code and the entire team. I want to say thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for mentoring the girls and everything you're doing. It means so much to us at I Am The Code. Really, it does. As I always say, when you support I Am The Code, you are elevating young women and girls globally. And I want you to know this because it is the truth. So thank you for everything, really. And you know who you are. So thank you. I participated online last week of uh, Generation Equality. It was really amazing. I couldn't go to Paris because I didn't have my vaccine. But we participated online. A lot of commitment were made, pledges and all of that. But I always say that the girls' education for me in gender-based violence activities and all of that, I believe that in, we need to invest, we need to put the money. Because activities are good, events are wonderful, but when we come on the ground, we need to see the result. So I really thought that I loved the event, it was fantastic, but at the same time, I felt that right now is the time for us to take action rather than just talking about it. Because we have these events all the time, but and then we end up forgetting actually what is the mission. So we also need to think about the 124 million children who are out of school right now. Right? They don't have access to education. 250 million are not learning basic skills due to poor education. So if we are going to advance the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, it is absolutely important that we invest into classrooms, content, infrastructure, and support young women and girls growing up in marginalized communities. A young girl belong into a classroom. This is so important. For me, education is a fundamental human right, just like water or internet or connectivity. Yet in times of conflict and disaster where I work, it is often significantly disrupted. We are denying millions of young girls and boys the opportunity to have a quality and safe education. I just think that this is not okay. It's not okay. As a global community, as we build society, we must ensure that young marginalized girls growing up in difficult places, challenging circumstances, have access to education. If we don't allow these people to learn, get educated, it's not going to happen. So we need to invest now. That's why I invited my guest this week. She knows all about inclusion, diversity, and justice. Her name is Maria Levin. She's today the head of the forum of the Young Global Leaders from the World Economic Forum, where I belong. I'm so proud to be part of the Young Global Leader community. At the age of 14, she knew that the world wasn't fair and just. I got to meet Maria a few years ago, where she started her work at the World Economic Forum and I felt safe in her hands. As a young global leader, I knew that I could trust her. I knew she would listen to me. I knew she would really take care of me without judgment and prejudice. 
And I think if you are going to lead communities and lead movements, you have to have empathy, compassion, and kindness. Treat everyone the same. I just wanted to share that because that's what memory have left with me. If you don't know our community, the Young Global Leaders, we are to date over 1,400 members and alumni of 120 nationalities. It's a blessing to be part of this community. We are innovators, entrepreneurs, technology pioneers, educators, activists, you just name it, artists, journalists, and more and more. But at the end of the day, we are human beings. We just want to change society. We want to do better. We want to leave a legacy, make the world a better place as we found it. This is what we're trying to do. Make the world a better place. As Gandhi said, be the change you want to see. I'm so delighted that Maria joined me in this podcast because I think we talked about so many things. The power of community. So many people don't belong into a community. So working with a beautiful team, she has got a wonderful team. And also we discussed the fact that they have pivoted from offline to online activities. We've done so many online activities. But it was really interesting to learn how they change very quickly to accommodate our community. I really hope you enjoy my conversation. I've learned quite a lot from Maria. She's really a beautiful human being and amazing soul. Wonderful, wonderful soul. Enjoy and I will see you on the other side. Maria, how are you? Very well, Miriam. How are you? Oh, I'm so happy to have you on the I Am The Code podcast. But let me tell you why we invited you. Usually we tell our guests why we got them on the podcast. You may not know this and you are so humble. I'm sure you will not want me to say this, but I have to. <laughs> you and I met, I'm counting, nearly three years ago. I remember we met in a big room in China and I just heard your name before. But they told us this woman is just going to come in. She's going to take care of the community. And I'm extremely privileged to be part of the Young Global Leaders community. And I remember that day you came in the room and you say hello to everyone. My heart just sunk. You know, it's like, oh, my God, she's so sweet. And I realized that day we will be all safe as Young Global Leaders. And since then, you and I forged this great relationship where I've been watching you and the work you've been doing. It's really remarkable. You are so empathetic, compassionate. You listen to people. And that really drove me to you. And I felt safe. And I, I wanted to say this to people to listen to that. Mm. And the second component is I think, you know, you listen. You do listen. You know, even if you don't agree with everything, you are fair. I've noticed that about you. You know, you you try to be as just as possible. You know, you don't take side. You really try to do as much as you can to listen and then go and come back if you can. Those sort of characters as a leader has really attracted me about you because a leader needs to be fair, not just take side, but someone, because we're all different people. We may all have different views. But what I liked about you mm. is you are, you are fair. And I just want to say, that's why I invite you to on the podcast, just to talk about your journey. And thank you so much for coming on the I Am The Code podcast. Welcome to the I Am The Code podcast. Oh, thank, thank you, Miriam. It's such, a, it's such an honor to be here with you. I, I have to say, it's also a huge honor to be speaking to all of the young women that you work with who are such an inspiration to me. No, no, thank you. Thank you so much for being who you are. But uh, you are right now in in Geneva, if I if I assume. Yes, I am in Geneva. 
We're still working from home, so I'm in my apartment. <laughs> the pandemic is still on in so many countries. I will talk in details on how you have adapted, you know, really. But how have you been coping? How are the kids? Oh, my girls are well. So I've got three kids. They're three and a half, five and a half, and seven and a half. And what's been really fortunate for us in Switzerland is that the Swiss government decided to keep schools open this school year. And so for my kids, um, life has continued minus a few social activities the way it was before the pandemic. And I know that you're also a mother, Miriam, and when your kids are okay, you're also okay. <laughs> so I stay very focused on being grateful for all that we have access to and all that we are provided. No, absolutely. I, I do agree. I like that. When the kids are okay, we're okay. You know, I was saying the other day that mothers make the history of their children. You know, our children will go back in, mm. in history to really think about this moment with COVID, right? It's been really difficult for many mothers. Yes. Oh, my God. It's been Working incredible for so many mothers. Yeah. And not having childcare or needing to be the teacher and the parent and the person who's doing all the cooking. And when do you have time to do the cooking if you're looking after your kids and being their teacher? It's incredibly difficult. And not having the grandparents' support either, That's true. which a That's lot true. of families have relied on. One of the things we don't talk about is actually the working from home can be sometimes tough. And can you imagine the, I was talking to a couple of moms the other day from a different ethnic group, and they were saying to me that the mothers don't actually understand the English curriculum. So they have challenges yes. actually educating the children at home and they have to do yes. literally everything. Yes. I said to lady, actually, you are right. I didn't get that one. She said, yeah. She said most of the moms in some ethnic group, some communities haven't been to school or, you know, they haven't read the yeah. British curriculum and they now have problems educating the children at home. So we have some kids actually at home not being educated because of that. I, I didn't know that. Yeah, and I think it becomes even more challenging the older the child is because mm -hmm. the greater the expectations and requirements for their learning. I mean, again, I'm very lucky that my kids are young through this period. I, I don't even know if they really recognize everything that's happening, know enough information to be afraid in the same way that kids who are entering the workforce or trying to get into university or, you know, trying to actually just build a social life the way those kids are. No, oh, it's really challenging. But talking about kids, you know, where, where did you grow up? Did you grow up in, in Europe? Can you just tell us a little bit about your story? Where did you go to school? I think many people don't actually may not know <laughs> where did you grow up because you are so international. Oh, well, I actually grew up in a really international city. I grew up in New York City. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. I was very lucky as a child. I had two incredibly loving parents. My dad's family actually lived in New York City as well, my grandparents and my aunts and uncles. So I had a childhood really surrounded by family. And sometimes it's sort of strange now to be in Geneva where we don't have any family. It's sort of recreating a different type of blueprint for what family looks like. But yeah, I was raised in Brooklyn, New York. New York is so diverse. How are you finding living in Geneva where everything is clean, everything is organized? And I know you are so organized. <laughs> you are so organized. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit about you know, the, the difference? <laughs> yeah, so I live in an area of Geneva that most reminds me of Brooklyn. It's called the Petit. I think it's one of the most 
socioeconomically mixed and most international places in the city. So when I was growing up in Brooklyn, Brooklyn's quite gentrified compared to what it was when I was growing up. And I grew up in an area that had a lot of contrast. There was a lot of disparity. There were people whose families had enough and whose parents, you know, had jobs that they, regular jobs that they went to. And then there were kids who really didn't have a lot of family support, you know, all on the same block. And I think that kind of embedded in me a real sense of the injustice around just like the luck of birth, whomever you're born to, whatever those sort of people have in terms of their own emotional resources to give to you as a child, or not even talking about money resources, but just sort of the experiences they've had, the opportunities they've had to be loved and to show love were really born out of our ancestors. And privilege is inherited. And so I was uh, very lucky to be raised in a place with very open-minded parents who were not afraid to show me really sad things, (laughs) but also inspire in me the hope to keep working towards a better future for everybody. I have diverted from your question. No, 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 it's wonderful. Which was about Geneva. No, 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 it's great. I can see now why you have this sense of justice and, and fairness. And I was going to ask you about the your work around inclusivity and diversity, which you, you really took on so deeply within your work. And I've, I've noticed that you really care about that. But when you talk about diversity and inclusion, is it because you've seen this when you were growing up? You saw so much injustice across the world. Do you mind just sharing why do you do that? Why do you think we need to talk about inclusion, diversity, and a sense of justice for this world? Yeah, this is an incredibly important topic to me. And I think it's always been very clear that there's not much that separates me from someone who grows up in a completely different situation and becomes a different person. So, for example, you know, all of the young women I met in Kakuma, like there's nothing that separates me as a human. We have the same bones. The blood is composed of the same cells, but I happen to have been born somewhere different than Kakuma. And so my opportunities are much, much greater in some respects. And so I think the reason I care about diversity and inclusion is because I truly believe that you know, until we, as a society, make it possible for everybody to reach their own potential, we can't realize the potential of humanity. And I feel really strongly that it is part of my life's work to support a broadening of opportunity. And this is why I'm passionate about the work I do at the Forum of Young Global Leaders, because it's a great privilege to have the duty or the the professional task of shining a light on leaders who have, you know, maybe been overlooked because of, (laughs) of where they're from or the sectors they work in or the way they speak or whatever it is. I think we owe it to humanity and the planet to really seek to include every voice and all talent. I know that. I've seen that. It's beautiful what you just said. I I have seen the work you've done on the ground. And uh, again, it shows who you are as a person. For me, when I saw you, as I said earlier, you had this sense that I am going to treat everyone the same. This is my job. And that led me to the work you do 
for our community, which I'm just going to mention a little bit, you are leading the Young Global Leaders community, which is really, I took, I call it the creme de la creme of network, you know, so many people, so many nationalities in a variety of ideas mm. from everywhere. But if you think about it very carefully, you're looking after us and, and trying to tell our stories and, and including us in conversations, in events, organizing things for us to grow as leaders. What has the community taught you since you started doing this work? I have so many things that the community has taught me. And some of them have been really hard lessons. So I think on the optimistic and really inspiring side, the community has taught me the power of imagination. It's this incredible group of people who just have vision about the way the world should be from their perspective. And they also just have this the drive, like this tireless dedication to working towards that vision. And it really begins to convey that anything is possible. If you have the imagination to see it in your mind's eye, then you can make it possible in reality. And I think that's been just such an incredibly inspirational component of working with this community. I think on the other side, the harder side, going back to this idea of inclusion Every year, we work hard to identify leaders that we think are really fabulous from across sectors, across the world, different genders and religions, and different viewpoints, you know? And of course, not everybody agrees. Of course, not everybody sees eye to eye on all issues. And I think what's been a lesson is that merely bringing people to the same table does not mean that every voice feels the same right to speak. Mm-hmm. And I think as we evolve as a community, as someone who's you know thinking about the community a lot with my team, I think we really have to work to create a space where everyone feels actually included, not just invited, but included and recognized. Yeah. So I think that's been a big lesson that this community has shown me. We bring together, as I said, people with such vision and integrity and courage and obviously differences. And it's okay to have those differences, but we must strive to create a space where everyone can share themselves. I always talk about how the Young Global Leader community and the World Economic Forum, all the the work it taught me to have a family, but at the same time that our differences can be accepted and we can express ourselves. People like us, we never had a mm-hmm. platform to to even speak up. So we know we were not even included. We were not supposed to be here, right? So it's really fascinating what you said. I love the fact that you're not tolerating people, but actually including them. And God knows that we, as you said, we have so many wonderful people with imagination and, and they have uh, visions and they want to do so much for the world. But it's really fascinating what you said. But when you think about it, our team this season four is really elevating humanity. But at the same time, I think what you said about imagination and inclusion is important. But also, we've been elevating humanity. We try anyway as a society. But you've done, I've seen the work you've done in trying to make sure people are seen, are visible, and they can be heard, right? Can you just share you know, in your personal life or in your professional life, how have you been elevating humanity in in, in the work you do? And how does it look like? I think this concept of elevating humanity, it resonates on so many levels. I think 
the way we had been working before COVID, if we think back to it, I mean, some of it was really inhumane, right? Like many people were on planes all the time, moving from place to place, barely having a moment with their families or emitting all kinds of carbon into the environment and not thinking about the longer term impact of that. And now we're at this moment where, as you say, Miriam, like we can elevate humanity. We can decide that we want to give people time to be with their families and loved ones. You know, it, we don't have to rush around from continent to continent merely to have a meeting. We can do that with technology. And so in a way, I think elevating humanity is providing each of us individually the space and time for reflection, to think, to be grounded in what we care about, and to open up a space where we can see how we make our values real every day. So the question of you know how I do that in my daily life, it's interesting in this past year, I've found that I've become much more involved in my local community. I think many people have. There's been, unfortunately, a, a lot of people who've lost their jobs in Switzerland and uh, in Geneva in particular. There's bigger food lines for food handouts and free food uh, than ever before. And so my family has been making sandwiches for people who don't have as much food. I think it's really important to make time to listen to, to people whose experiences of this pandemic are just so vast and so different. I think just generally, you know, the whole mental health aspect, the whole feeling connected to one another element of what this post-COVID recovery or new normal could look like, all of that to me signals an elevation of humanity. Oh, absolutely. I know that you don't like compliment, but I really want to say this. I've seen you grow within the forum. I've seen the way you listen. And I actually want to ask you about listening. How do you... Where did you learn to listen? Because what I said earlier is really important because I've noticed you listen for being fair, right? So how, maybe maybe mm -hmm. we, the young girls listening and the boys around the world, because this podcast is being listened to by so many people now, I think it could be nice mm -hmm. for you to just share some of the tips that maybe you learned that we don't know. Listening to be fair, mm -hmm. which I noticed in you. I don't mm -hmm. know if you've noticed that, but I have noticed Every time I think about you, you said, Maria, we listen to be fair. She will not judge, but she will be fair. <laughs> how, how, where did you learn this? Can you share with the, the girls? Yeah, I think I learned it from my parents. So my dad is a, a social worker. And when I was growing up, his job was to go to different people's houses to hear how they're doing and see how he could get government support for them or any kind of support that they needed. So he's, my dad is a very deep listener. And I think that's part of it. And then the other part is from my mom, because <laughs> she is from the American South. And I, of course, grew up in the American North. And there really is a lot of cultural division between those two regions. And my mom, I think, was judged for being from the South. And even today, there's stereotypes that people have about Southerners and what they believe and, you know, politics and how their political views differ. And I remember my mom always saying, what that person is saying is rational in their own minds. People make rational decisions according to the data and the life experience they've had. So our job is to understand 
what data they're using, but really more than that, their lived experience. And if we can understand their lived experience, we can see from their point of view. And I think that's really what I always try to do. I try to understand where someone's coming from because I believe that each person has good intentions and that each person is good at their base. And perhaps it's life that has made them misunderstood or particular context where their beliefs don't conform. And just because they don't conform doesn't mean they're wrong. It's worth listening to people to see what their perspectives are, I think. Wow. That's a lesson, young girls and boys, if you are listening. It's really important what you just said. So many people in the world don't actually listen to be fair. And we have an exercise that I am record where I ask them to listen with reciprocity, right? When you listen to people and try mm-hmm. to reciprocate the life they have. And I think people like us, you know, when I say like us, it's when we've been through difficult background as children, when we'd never had a parents or we never had a mother mm. or a father who listened to us like your parents. So when we grow up, we mm. tend to, because no, no one listened to us. And so it's so important what you just said, yeah. because I think for the Kakuma girls and all the boys listening to this podcast, they do listen to each other. So I think that was really a very good lesson. I think it's going to serve so many people. You also know my work around climate change issues, but I've been reading the old, you know, the, your LinkedIn, everything you've been working on in also helping people with their mental health and sharing some of the ideas you have. What do you think about climate change and mental health? You know, our girls in Kakuma are really suffering with heat. People are not listening to them, in fact. What do you think we should do? How can we listen to young girls and boys growing up in this world of misery and making sure that, you know, they don't, they don't suffer that much? And I think climate change has something to do with this. Yeah, I think it's so interesting that you ask about climate change and mental health because I remember, I don't, I, I can't quote the research, but I remember several articles I've read recently about the linkages between mental health and climate. Because, you know, as you say, when you're living in extreme heat or extreme cold, it's difficult on your brain. And it also changes social dynamics. So maybe the outlets that you once had to support your own mental health aren't there in the same way that they traditionally are. What can I say about climate change? This is, uh, I think, a major issue, perhaps the major issue that we all need to be thinking about right now, because it's going to impact our children's children, et cetera, et cetera. It's an issue that's vital for the future of humanity. I also think that people in the Western world who have air conditioning units, who travel by car, who travel by plane, who have food in their refrigerator that they don't eat, I mean, all of these practices need to be re-examined. I think there's an obligation to think about carbon offsets anytime you travel. There's an obligation to eat a more plant-based diet. (laughs) There's an obligation to think about whether you really need to turn on your air conditioner or whether you can be at 80 degrees Fahrenheit and still sleep fine. I think those of us who have the opportunity to modify our behaviors should take that opportunity. You know, absolutely. I do agree. I get so worried for the Kakuma girls. as, But I also know that you've been to Kakuma. And I remember when I saw you there, I was so happy that you actually, you know, took the time. Again, this is not a thing that I like about you. You went, you said, before we serve, 
before we do anything, let's go and listen. You traveled to Gakumo refugee camp and meet young girls. I, I loved that. I love that sense of research that you do. You always go and try to understand before you jump in into something. I just love that about you. But when you went to Kakuma, you saw how hard it was, really difficult. You saw how mm. hard it was. You saw how hard it was for these young women and girls. But when you think about it now, what do you, how did you feel when you arrived in Kakuma? And when you start walking around the camps, what went into your mind? It's hard to say, Miriam, because on the one hand, I was so uh, generously welcomed by people in Kakuma. It was, first of all, it was much bigger than I had envisioned in my head. It's really, it's a city. It's not, you know, you think refugee camp, you think it's going to be like a couple of tents or maybe even a hundred or 300 tents or something. This is a city. And it's very clear that people there have established their lives through incredible adversity. Despite incredible adversity, they have established businesses, families, a sense of community. And I think that is such a testament to human resilience. So I was incredibly moved by going to Kukuma. And I would be lying if I said it didn't make me feel sad for the world that so much talent, so many bright young people with incredible ideas and you know aspirations weren't connected to the rest of the world, that it's so difficult to break out of the context of life in Kakuma, that opportunity is so confined. I think that's something I don't think I would ever be able to fully comprehend. Mm. And so I just think of the courage and the bravery. I just finished reading, I have a colleague at the forum, this incredible young man called Abdullahi Alim. And he passed me a book called Beyond the Sand and Sea. It's about a boy from Dadaab, actually, a refugee camp. I'm just on the last 30 pages. But it's been, it's really reminded me of my short time in Kakuma. I mean, I'd love to go back to Kakuma and see how I can help create more bridges. I'm so pleased we've got a Global Shapers Hub there. And the work that that Global Shapers Hub doing, again, is just remarkable. But yeah, I think it's important to stay aware and stay conscious of the lives that people in Gakuma and Adab and so many other refugee settlements around the world are living. Because, you know, these are 70 million people. That's a big country. Mm -hmm. There are nearly 80 million refugees across the world, right? And so Bakakuma... The young girls and the boys we work with, you know, with the World Economic Forum and creating a Kakuma, you know, Shepherd Hub and all of this, it's a way to move the needle. You know, at IM Record, we're trying our best to get these young women and girls to have some jobs. Everything could lead to employability. Somehow they're learning how to code. But it's really tough for them. So many young women and girls are living in that camp in misery. It's really difficult. But when you combine hope and the fact that, you know, Society is changing with COVID-19, Georgia Floyd dying, all of the you know, awareness we have now in, in this world. What gives you hope? I know you are a very optimistic person. Mm. But what gives you hope with mm-hmm. these Kakuma refugee girls, you know, Kakuma Shepherds, I am the court girls, all of this? What gives you hope, Maria? 
you know, Miriam, people like you and all of the people I get to work with give me so much hope. And that's why I feel so lucky to get to encounter people like you every day. I feel like sometimes I feel like we're facing this big, enormous iceberg, like bigger than the tallest building we could ever imagine. And we've all got these mini ice picks that we're chipping away at the iceberg with. And so it it can feel pointless, I guess, at, at times to keep trying, to keep going. But, you know, really, there's no alternative. This is our life's work. I was in an educational module run for the YGLs recently called Leading for Racial Equity. And one of the professors was calling it heart work. You know, people are saying, oh, this is hard work. This is hard work. He said, no, it's heart work. It comes from your heart. And that phrase is sort of stuck with me. I like that. I like that hard work. Yes, I do too. I do too. I love it. I love it. Yeah. The optimism comes from imagination, from the deep belief that we can do better. And I think from the, this essential sort of instinct, like part of having children is, it's a declaration of hope, right? Like I would never bring children into the world and three of them into the world unless I really believed we could keep becoming better as humans and for the planet, you know? So this is the greatest declaration of hope you can signal to the world, I think. Uh, I'm so happy that you are reading books and we will go back to Kakuma as soon as COVID-19 is easing. The girls are doing very well and I'm sure they're listening to you now. They're doing great. They actually going to start doing the podcast with me. So you may be just coming back and talking to the Kakuma girls. Who knows? <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Yeah, yeah, that's they're great. great. Yeah, yeah, they're doing great. They are growing oh. now. So they call the I am the code keepers. And it's really oh. fascinating how much they, they've grown. And I got to meet a few of them, Miriam, when yes, I was yes. in Kakuma. And oh my goodness. Oh, yeah. they, they, they are right just now. incredible. Sure I can remember that lady. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the other uh, thing is I was saying all the day, how, how, when we think about it very carefully, though, that's why I love the fact that we have the Kakuma, you know, shepherd. When you think about these young women when they grow up, I said they have a chance. They have a chance to join these communities mm. now. Now we mm. have a shepherd there. Mm. For example, you know, that our dear Okelo, I think some of sometimes we don't realize what we do. We may see that it's very small, but people are like okay, look, he's excelling. He's doing so well. He's so grateful. He's so grateful to have been to, you know to Davos and all of that. But when you think about young women and girls that we're serving at I Am the Code, and globally we have twenty-seven thousand girls into the program, but these girls are living from slums, favelas, difficult places of the world. Do you think they have a chance? in the next 10 years to actually sit where I'm sitting right now? Because no, I didn't know if I could have a chance to join these sort of communities when I was growing up. Mm. I, I think they absolutely do. And we have, you, you know, this community, Miriam, like we have people who've come from all walks of life to the YGL community. And I'd also say that while the YGL community is an incredible collection of leaders from around the world, there are so many incredible leaders that aren't YGLs. I mean, every year we get something like 1,500 nominations for the YGL community. Uh, We have an annual sort of class launch and uh, an annual kind of intake of of young global leaders. And 
every year I feel like, wow, you know, this person might not be a YGL, but they are doing incredible work. Thank goodness they're in the world. So I think sometimes the status markers are, of course, it's always wonderful to be recognized. But what I will say is there are so many incredible people doing incredible things all over the world. And not every one of them will be recognized as a young global leader or as the head of an organization or recognized at all, except for by their family members. And yet we can't stop doing our work. We can't let recognition or status be the driver for wanting to create change in the world. There's so much opportunity to be a leader at whatever you're doing and in whatever way. The other thing, you change your life. Because I feel that the World Economic Forum, and then for me personally, I've been saying this to everyone who wants to listen, and the YGL community, they have changed my life. And just I've met so many formidable friends, beautiful human beings that, you know, I really trust and I love. But when you think about it, now you have this data you see all the time, wonderful people. You meet people. You really meet so many. You have friends in every city almost. <laughs> you know, when you have, you know, but when you think about it, who changed your life? You know, who who really changed your life? And why are you so passionate about the work you do? Mm. So I've had so many people shape my life from family members, to friends, to colleagues. It's almost too many. I, I've been very lucky. Uh, too many to, to count. When I think about that question, the person who comes to mind is a person whose name I don't even know because he, he was actually a homeless person that slept on a grate by a subway station right by my school when I was a kid. So I went to an elementary school in downtown Brooklyn from age five to 10. And I'm pretty sure if it wasn't all through the years, it was at least for three or four of the years that, you know, the same gentleman was lying on the ground sleeping. <laughs> and I think the contrast of my dad and I like bustling off to school, having a backpack, everything I needed, and this gentleman who I don't know if he has any family. I don't know his story. It was a lot for a little kid to take in, but I do think that experiences like that uh, changed my life. Yeah, there are some stories that, and there are some things that we will never forget. And I think this is where you have built your empathy and compassion. And someone was telling me the other day, how do you have this ability to see people? I said, well, I see them. You know, I see Maria. I see people because I know... For you to be empathetic right now and to be compassionate and to be able to be fair and just and try to do as much as you can to give everyone a chance to speak, even if you don't agree or even if they don't agree, is because you built up this empathy in your stomach. And I really love the fact that the girls are listening to you. But I think apart from being empathetic and compassionate, we need other skills because these young women and girls Mm. need skills and we want to make sure that young girls have the skills they need what are the skills do you think that one or two skills that you build up as a leader that do you think the young refugees mm. and all the girls listening now should have i love that question Miriam, because you're so right you know on the one hand yes empathy compassion uh listening these are critical to inform 
you know, leadership, but also a leader has to get things done, right? So I think the skills that have most helped me are really, I would say, ones that sort of project management more broadly. So thinking about work planning and motivating a team and being really clear about whatever you need to deliver on and the steps to doing that, really being able to see a big task and break it down into small pieces so that you can do each little piece to add up to the big part. I think that's one really important skill and to be able to communicate it clearly so that a team can participate in you know, achieving the goal together and can support one another. That's really, really important. I think on the other side, I think writing is a very important skill. I think being able to communicate with the written word and then to share your ideas verbally in a sort of illustrative, compelling way, I really think those are such core skills to a leader. I love your articles, by the way. And I love your LinkedIn profile. I'm always going there and checking everything you post something. (laughs) I love the thoughts behind it. And it's always beautiful when I see that because I know you took so much time to do it. But let me ask you, as we finish this podcast, we always ask people to visualize I Am The Code. And we are so proud to be part of the success at I Am The Code. Also, So many young global leaders have supported this, this amazing program. When you visualize... I am recording 2030, us getting 1 million women and girls to learn how to code, give them digital skills. They can become entrepreneurs, as you said. They'll become writers. They'll have project management skills, as you said. What change in your, as being a mother of two girls, what change do you want to see, Maria, in the next 10 years? And how do you visualize this in your own work and in your personal life? Mm-mm-mm. I think the change that I'd most like to see is more sort of bipartisan, more reaching across the aisle politically, more seeking to understand, suspending judgment before acting, connecting before correcting or judging someone. I think on a human level, that's what I'd like to see. I think there'd be a lot more mutual understanding in politics, in communities, across social media. I think that's one real change I'd like to see. I also think there's a lot of change that needs to happen in terms of our relationship to the planet. And I would really like to see greater appreciation for nature and protection of nature. So I think we're seeing, as as you said, Miriam, the girls and all people in Kakuma are experiencing greater heat and probably more of it. In the United States, where I'm from, there's droughts and heat waves that didn't exist uh, even 10 years ago. This is a major problem. And as we already said, it's going to impact mental health, but also physical health and the way people can interact with one another. So I think those are the two changes. I'd love to see greater responsibility taken for the well-being of our planet. I think people need to pause, listen, and reflect, seek to understand before they attack or judge others. So you have one more. I know you love this one and you deserve it. You have one one single question before your time is finished. What is gratitude? You are such a great grateful person. You show this to me and you show it to everyone that for the fact that you are leading us, you've been given a great responsibility to take care of people who are not usually easy. <laughs> I will just say that as a disclaimer. <laughs> but what is gratitude for you? 
For me, I think gratitude is really a practice. It's looking at reality and deciding what you're going to absorb, what you're going to notice, what you're going to hear. So there's a lot of mental strength in gratitude in deciding how you want to interpret a situation that's put before you and how you want to account for the life that you have. There's plenty. There's every single person can complain about something. (laughs) The question is, what does that do for us? What kind of energy does that bring into our bodies, but also into the people surrounding us, into our organizations, into our communities? Yes, I think for me, gratitude is really, it's a way of being, really. I don't want to live an ungrateful life. I want to relish the chances I have and see the beauty that exists before me. What is the one thing you've done during COVID that you look back to and you are very proud of? I think one of the things that I'm really proud of is the way that my team has adapted to the COVID context. So I don't know if this is so much something that I'm proud of because I've done it. I think I've managed to create an environment where it's happened, which is thanks to a great team. But I really do feel as though my team has been there for one another. We've undergone incredible changes. We've gone from a team of 12 to a team of right now four. And I think we've shown great care and support for one another. And I'm really proud of that. I think that's one thing that I'm really proud of. I think, again, this shows your character. You always talk about, you know, this wonderful team. But I think one of the things I just want to end this podcast with is we, the young global leaders of the World Economic Forum, and me personally, I'm extremely proud of the work you've done for the Forum, Maria. And one of the things I'm really proud of personally is the fact that you came in, you didn't judge. You came in, just, I'm just going to take them the way I see it. And that's how I felt when I met you for the first time. I felt you wanted to start clean. It's like, I don't know her, but I'm just going to treat her the way I should do that. And I think any person listening to this podcast should have the same attitude of just not judging, just starting clean. And on behalf of the girls and on behalf of I Am The Code, I just want to say thank you so much. And because of all the work we've been doing, I'm pleased to announce that we have new advisory boards. They're all young global leaders from the World Economic Forum. And just want to say thank you so much for coming on the I Am The Code podcast, Maria Levin. Thank you for being here. And thank you for your work. We appreciate you. Oh, well, Miriam, that's a really exciting news to learn that you're having an advisory board that's all young global leaders. And I guess I, you know, in return, Miriam, you are absolutely one of the people that makes my job so incredibly enriching. And what you do for so many people around the world, for so many young women around the world is so meaningful. And the way you include others in contributing more broadly and more deeply is just, it gives me the shivers. It's, <laughs> I've got goosebumps. 
No, thank you. It's really great. You know, we have our dear friend, Hemi de Bourbon, just joined as, uh, as advisory board, uh, Ada Osake. And we have a Basena from South Africa, Miss South Africa. So she just become our patron, actually, with Christopher Schaffler. Yes. They did incredible people. And I think, as you said earlier, by including young global leaders, you are making sure we are part of the process. You don't have to do that. But, but I said, you know, as a community, as Maria always say, you can't walk alone. And I think you need to include people. They have skills. They have so much to give to the world. I think we should include them into, because the success of I Am The Code, you know, it's not a one-person job. It's a global success. And if we can look back in 2030 and, and mention all of these people and mention the YGL community which you are leading, I think it's going to motivate and inspire other people. So thank you so much for coming on the I Am The Code podcast. And we will let you know tomorrow how we're getting on with this amazing announcement. Thank you for, for having me. And then also, of course, a major thank you to the, the girls and the folks in Kakuma who are listening. What a wonderful woman. She is really beautiful, very lovely. I love Maria. She's a really nice person. The way she speaks right now, this is how she is when you meet her. She's very warm, very lovely, very accommodating. I just love having her. I think we can learn so much from her. Sometimes the quietest people are actually the people who are making difference behind the scenes. So, <laughs> you know, I also love this quote from her. It was written on Forbes. I was reading it the other day. She said that injustice documented on social media has really escalated against the vile outcome of prejudice. And I really agree with that. And we cannot allow systematic injustice to endure another three decades. It's just not possible, right? I love that quote from her. I believe personally that change is possible. But systematic change is inevitable. And as a pioneer of change, when I go and meet government, private sector, try to make them change their attitude, their behaviors, their policies, I know we can make a difference. Sometimes it takes one single individual, a champion in a government, in a place, in a community, to make a difference. So don't hesitate to make a difference yourself. You have been listening to the I Am The Code podcast. I'm your host, Mariam Jam, I am so delighted to have you come again this Friday to listen to this podcast and join me and join my guests. Thank you so much. If you like this content, please share it and subscribe to the I Am The God podcast. We need you to subscribe and give us your feedback. We count on you and your generosity. I know there is someone out there who will listen to this podcast and will have their life changed. Why not share it? Sharing is loving. When you share, it means you are loving people and you're caring for them. So many people don't have information, so please go ahead and share the content. We are a very small team at I Am The Code, totally dedicated to making this wonderful content available to you for people who want to do better and be better. We want to make sure you have the content you need to transform yourself. I really hope that I'm doing you justice. Remember to donate to I Am The Code. If you really have something to donate or to support our girls, please donate to I Am The Code. Thank you so much for being here. I wish you a wonderful Friday. Have a restful weekend. Drink plenty of water. Take some rest, self-care. But above all, make sure you're elevating humanity. Thank you. And I will see you next Friday. Thank you so much. Goodbye.